But hello, Sarepta. It's so nice to see you all. Um, I think some of you are aware that um, oh, I can actually move this thing. Can we see the whites of their eyes, you know? Um, this was supposed to have happened in, uh, when was it? March, April, March, something like that. And, uh, and then um, I had a little incident that where my, my heart was speaking to me, not a very nice language. And um, so we, um, we've had to postpone it to now. So thank you all for still coming out, even though the season is changing and um, it's probably a fairly busy time for everyone. There we go. So <clears throat> I think I've read this before to you, but it bears repeating in the context of we're going to be talking about identity. I, I think the life cycle is all backwards. You should start out dead. Just get that messy business right out of the way up front. You wake up in a frail care facility and start feeling better every day. Then you get kicked out of there for being too healthy, collect your pension, and when you start work, you get a gold watch on your first day. You work 40 years until you're young enough to enjoy your retirement. You misbehave, party hard every weekend, have a series of girlfriends, and then get ready for high school. After high school, you go to primary school, become a kid and play or nap all day, and have few, if any, responsibilities. Then you become a baby with no cares whatsoever, being fed on demand, pampered and admired by everyone. Then you spend your last nine months floating peacefully with luxuries like central heating, spa treatments, room service on tap, larger living quarters every day. And then you finish off as a sperm cell that wins a race against the hundred million others. <laughs> This in the context of the question that we're going to be trying to answer over these few sessions that we have together, which is, who are you? And maybe more specifically, who do you think you are? Because um, one of the most important things that all of us has to um, come to some understanding about is this thing of identity. And I'm going to explain why that is so important. Your identity is the, is the currency, is the kind of the, 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 the Fort Knox. It's the, it's the gold standard that's, that um, uh, undergirds, that backs everything, every exchange that you make with another human being. It is the thing that forms your sense of confidence. It gives you your, your, or undermines your confidence. It's the thing that gives you your ability to give yourself without expectation uh, when you are secure in your own identity. And the opposite is also true. If you haven't answered the question, who am I, in a, in a way that really works for you, uh, or, even worse, if the answers to that question are um, faulty, distorted, what they will do is they will prevent you ever becoming 
the being, or if maybe I should rather use the word, the becoming that you were meant to become. I prefer to say people are human becomings rather than human beings. We're on the way somewhere. We have started as that sperm cell that won the race. I, I, I hope I don't have to explain that that was backwards. Okay. Um, so you started as a fertilized ovum. And a whole lot of miracles took place in, that, in those seconds surrounding that event. And everything that you will ever become was, in physiological ways specifically, was coded into the being or the becoming that began to become from that moment on. I believe that uh, more than that, it wasn't just the physiological event, but that as David has it, you were actually the product of God's knitting skills. He was knitting you together in your mother's womb. One plane, one pearl, one plane, one pearl. And as my daughter said once when we were praying for one of the, one of the grandbabies that had some, where the mother had some difficulties, um, she said, oh darn it, I dropped a stitch. God said, oh darn it, I dropped a stitch. And then he actually fixed it after, after that. But So maybe some of us would complain about some of the stitches that God put in place because they made lumps and bumps and they, you know... Like that, what was that old thing that said, uh, when God was handing out uh, noses, I thought he said roses, and I asked for a big red one. <laughs> and so we get all kinds of, um, but let's not talk about the things that we complain about. Here is the deal. What David says, it's the most remarkable thing. Psalm 139 is an amazing psalm that tells us that not only physiologically, not only neurologically, not only in terms of things like brain capacity and, and uh, particular ways, and, uh, but in fact, God had even written our story. He had, he had determined things. It said before there was even a thought in my brain. Before my brain could frame a thought, you knew it. And in fact, God's, God's handiwork is so amazing that he, he, was, he was able to say every day that that person is going to live. And then, actually, what he, what he wrote was, he wrote the ideal script for your life. He wrote... The, f- the person you were going to become. He wrote the talents that you were going to have, the abilities that were going to be encoded into your DNA. And he also wrote another story. He wrote a story of redemption. He, in fact, wrote your name in his book. You thought that your name got written in his book the day that you were saved, didn't you? Actually, no. He wrote your name in his book from before, before the foundation of the world, and all that happened the day you got saved is that he marked you present. Another one checked in. Another one checked in. So nothing about your life takes him by surprise. 
And there's not a thing that has gone wrong in your life that he hasn't already written the remedy for. He is going to finish what he started in your life. Now, I was saying before I went off on that little side journey that why it's important to understand who you are is because if you don't, you will believe lies that will actually hold you back from that potential, the potential, the story that God has written about you. You know that there is a text that says that God's word will not return to him void. It's a very important verse that actually talks about the fact that God sends his word forth to do the things that it says. To actually produce the things that it says. It's a powerful thing. The word of God is not just information. It's not even just advice. But it is living, powerful energy that comes from the Trinity and that moves into the world and actually accomplishes the things that it says. In the same way as right at the beginning, when the earth was formless and void and darkness was upon the surface of the deep and the Spirit of the Lord hovered, or as the Zambians say, hoovered over the surface of the deep. And then God said, Light be! And light was. No arguments, no committee meetings, no operations team to make it happen. God said, light be, and the word created what he was describing. And now, every, every minute of every day, of every twinkle of every star, is being upheld by that same word. While... Jesus says, glow, glow, twinkle, 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 little star. He's saying it, and the star twinkles. And if he stops saying it, the star stops twinkling. He upholds everything that he has made by the word of his power. The same thing is true in your life. But there's one verse that contradicts that. One verse that contradicts it. Jesus said this to the Pharisees. He said, you, by your, your religious malarkey, your nonsense, have made the word of God void. You make the word of God impotent by your religious practices and your religious thinking. And your thinking that changes the very nature of God. And changes how you perceive him. And therefore also changes how you perceive yourself. And what he's about doing in your life. Take a moment. Let's just have a little, a little sharing, you know. I know when people do this in church, I want to go to the toilet. But, uh, but, but. Bear with me. I want you to introduce yourself to someone. Uh, you know, obviously not your wife or your husband, but it can be someone that you know, but maybe try and find someone that you don't know that well 
And here's the thing to do. I want you to introduce yourself. And you're not allowed to say anything about what you do when you do that, when you make that introduction. So like give them three, four, five statements, a little short paragraph describing yourself, introducing yourself as though they were a perfect stranger and had never really met you at all. So you have to introduce yourself using phrases like I am, but you're not allowed to say what you do. Okay? Take a moment. Go. Go. Three minutes. And do it in both directions, okay? Okay, how, how, how difficult was that for you? Was it, was it hard? Easy. Easy. Some of you said it was hard? It was easy? It was hard. Why, why do you think, yeah, why do you think it was hard? Give me a, one reason why you think it was hard. I do, okay, yes, yes, okay. Uh. <laughs> I should have said at the beginning there are no right answer and wrong answers, you see. <laughs> um, one of the reasons why we sometimes find that exercise difficult is because we are... Um, uh, we're kind of in, yeah, we're in this, in this zone when it comes to ourselves that we, we, f- we don't want to be proud. We don't want to, we don't, we're not used to speaking about ourselves. We, we don't really have language to describe, for example, our joys, our sorrows, our, our, our strengths, our weaknesses, our talents, our abilities, our dreams. We don't do that very, very easily. And a lot of the reason for that is because um, we don't really like ourselves. We don't trust ourselves. We don't, we don't feel as though, um, you know, I think I've mentioned before in this church the, the book written some years ago back in the 70s by a man called John Powell that was called Why Am I Afraid to Tell You Who I Am? That was the title of the book. And, his, and the answer to the question that the title of the book poses was this. I don't like who I am. And if I really tell you who I am, you won't like me either. You will reject me. And so insecurity and a lack of real healthy self-esteem is the basis of that difficulty that we have very often in telling people about ourselves. We think it will be prideful. They've made a kind of a culture of it in Scandinavia, especially Sweden. The Swedes have, and I keep forgetting the word, there's a word. It may be the Norwegians, I'm not sure which. Anyway, um, but they have this word that is like a, a, a description of pride. That they say you must never stand out. You must never be more um, kind of obvious. You, you, you mustn't be... Um, uh, boastful. You mustn't uh, kind of elevate yourself. You mustn't appear as though you know better than someone else or you are better than someone else. And so they kind of completely disappear, constantly disappear, disappear, and, and look for the space where I can just be camouflaged against the background of the whole lot 
rather than ever standing out. On the other hand, we have this phenomenon. If, I mean, the selfie phenomenon is a, is a disease, really. But, um, and and, and it's, it seems to belong to a particular gen. I'm not looking in any particular direction now. But there seems to be a generation that has taken to this thing called selfies. But, but the fact is that the generations before them were not very different because here's how you'll know. You give a school yearbook or a photo album to someone, you know, a wedding album to someone to, to look at it. Who's the first person they look for? Themselves. They look for the selfie. Why? Because there's something in us that longs for significance. So your identity is this curious mixture where on the one hand, I, I know that I'm supposed to be humble. And on the other hand, I'm desperate for recognition. I'm desperate to be known. All right. Now, the background to this thing of Christian identity. My goodness. Uh, all right. We're here until midnight, right? No. Paul, 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Beautiful segment where Paul is talking about the, um, the wonder of, the, of redemption. He talks about redemption. And, he's, and in it he says these words. He talks about the cross and he says... For the love of Christ controls us. The love of Christ has taken hold of us. Because we have reached this conclusion. That one has died for all. Therefore all have died. And he died so that those who live may live no longer unto themselves. For themselves. But for him who for their sake died and rose again. And then he says these words. Because although... We, from now on, we regard no one from a worldly point of view. We, regard, we do not think about people purely in the context of their human origins, of the, the sperm cell and the, and the physiological development that went on in a womb. We no longer think about people from the point of view of the family they came from and the, and the education they got and the... Their, their relative poverty or wealth and their status in society. We no longer think about, we don't even think about people from the point of view of their morality and their moral achievements, their religious status and standing and understanding. We regard no one from a human point of view. In fact, he says, though we once considered Christ, we thought about Christ from the human point of view, we consider him thus no longer. Paul was confessing something. He was saying, you see, that when we think, when we have a distorted lens through which to view ourselves and others, it even can affect whether we get or whether we don't get Jesus. Why? Because the Pharise- why did the Pharisees miss Jesus? Because they considered him through a human lens. They said, this son of a carpenter, he comes from Naz- can any good thing come from Nazareth? 
He comes from Nazareth for goodness sake. He can't teach us anything. We, and in fact, you know what? Not only that, he's illegitimate. You know that his mom was three months pregnant when she got married. Everybody can do the maths. Otherwise, he was very premature. They considered Jesus an illegitimate uh, uh, son. They considered him through a human lens. And that's the reason, or it's part of the reason, why their understanding was darkened and they did not recognize the Son of God. They did not see their Messiah for who he really was. So, I mean, take that as just a little object lesson of how easy it is for all of us to have wrong views of identity, ours as well as, in this case, the, the identity of Christ. And the result of that can be religious blindness, can be social ineptitude, can be misery can in fact be a thing that Paul calls setting up strongholds in the mind that are like fortresses against the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit couldn't even get a word in edgeways through the fortress of prejudice that was in the minds of those Pharisees. So we consider no one from a worldly point of view. Therefore, he says... If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has gone, the new has come. And what Paul is inviting us to do in, in that regard is he's saying, I am going to relate to you from now forward, not any longer from the human point of view. From whether you're old or young or rich or poor or white or black or in between or, you know, lightly toasted or darkly toasted or educated or not educated. I'm not going to consider you like that. I am going to relate to you as a fellow member of a new creation that has a very different DNA, that operates by a very different set of values, that has got something working in you that is going to end up like this. Those whom he foreknew he predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. The identity to which you are being shaped, into which you are being shaped, is Christ. You're going to look just like Jesus. You're going to think just like Jesus. You're going to uh, love just like, well... Some of these are present, past tense, present tense, and some of them are future still. You're going to smell like Jesus. You're going to dance like Jesus. And he was a dancer. I promise you. He was half Greek, I think. I think somewhere in there there was some Greek. And, the, and a bit of African, of course. No, he definitely wasn't British. Is that what somebody said? <laughs> definitely. <laughs> definitely. <laughs> I'll read you that thing tomorrow about the 
about he- heaven and hell and, and who runs which, you know, of the n- nationalities. You know that one. Eaton. <laughs> Jesus went to Eaton. <laughs> yes. Have you any any of you been to Nazareth? You been to Nazareth? It's a it's a place of caves. It's a place of caves. Jesus was Jesus' parents were probably cave dwellers. And I don't think they had very good schools in those caves. They had terrible accents too, those people. So Jesus had Jesus had nothing commending him to, you know, the upper echelons of society. But but here's the end product. God made him to be who had no sin to be sin. Now listen to the wording. It doesn't say to be a sinner, to be sin. To be identified with sin. So that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Not that we might perform the righteousness of God. Not that we might do the righteousness of God. But that we might become the righteousness of God. So your becoming, is there's much more going on than is going on. There's much more going on than just that you're becoming a nicer person or that you're becoming gooder or that you are you know, nicer to your wife and that you get a better golf score. Although Alan has been praying that thing for years. doesn't seem to be working. But that you might become. That you might have something going on in your DNA where you can do nothing but righteousness. When you have become something, you don't have to think about doing it. It is an outflow of your nature. You, Descartes, who was a French philosopher, said, I think, therefore I am. Was that Sartre? Anyway, one of them. I think, therefore I am. It it goes like this. I am, therefore I do. That's That's how this thing called Christian identity works. I am, therefore I do. We we've turned it upside down in the world. We go, I do, therefore I am. You know? I do, therefore that's my identity. My identity flows out of what I do. I'm a good Christian because I do Christian stuff. And it, it actually makes grace, complete. as Paul said, it makes grace of no effect. So, isn't this great? We've actually got past the introduction. Isn't this amazing? So, very quickly, some, some definitions. What is, what is identity? Identity is, uh, 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 the word identity comes from a Latin word, idem, which means the same, same as. My, my grandson used to say to me, when we were wearing tackies together, he'd say, 
You and me, same, same, Pappy. Same, same. Same, same. So that has to do with this thing where you identify with someone or you become identical with someone. That's the, uh, the same root. Uh, so the, the identity is the sense of who you are based on th- your distinguishing characteristics. And that's got to do with things like your demeanor, your, um, ag- again, as I said, your talents, your gifts, your strengths, your weaknesses, your, um, your uh, background, your breeding, all of those kinds of things contribute to this thing called identity. It, it comes out of your DNA. Isn't it amazing that they can take one little scraping of somebody's fingernail or something that was under a fingernail, and from that they can tell this is skin cells that come from a person who is uh, male and has got curly hair and has got blue eyes and has got, uh, you know, and, and is blonde and is... etc., etc. They can even tell uh, from that this is a woman and she's pregnant. They can tell all of that from one little piece of DNA. Most amazing thing that. So your identity involves both your character as well as your outer con- conduct, your inner character as well as your outer conduct. Character, on the other hand, is something that has to do with the, the, your, your moral preferences, your moral things, the things that you do when no one's looking. That's your character. That was said by a guy who did some naughty things when no one was looking, but it's still a good definition. There's a third thing, your self-concept. Your self-concept is made up of two things. First of all, a thing called self-image. That is an internal mirror in which you see yourself. You have a concept of yourself. You have an image of yourself, and it is that Person, we'll talk some more about this tomorrow, but it is that person that you think you are that is the the, um, broker of all of your exchanges with the world, with people, with things, with stuff, with whatever. You operate out of that. There's a second part to that, though, which is self-esteem, which is the value that you attach to that image. So... You think of yourself in a certain way, and then you say, this person is either valuable or not valuable. And we have different criteria that we use to measure that, which takes us again all the way back to performance-orientated identity. You know, beautiful people are more valuable than ugly people. Thin people are more valuable than fat people. Uh, Educated people are more valuable than uneducated people. Rich people are more valuable than poor people. And so we can go on and on and on. And then you have degrees within that, depending on which school tie do you wear. You see, that creates value and sometimes diminishes value. These are all the ways of thinking about this stuff from a worldly point of view. Proverbs 23, 7 says, For as he thinks within himself, so is he. As a person thinks in his heart, so is he. You operate out of the person you think you are, not out of the person you really are. 
In other words, when was it Shakespeare? That, no, who was it that said all the world's a stage? And so we're, we step onto a stage and we put on an act. And that act is based on the mask we're wearing. You know, the word personality comes from the word persona, which was a mask. It, 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 it is a different role that people played. So they would have, you know, they couldn't afford more than, say, two or three uh, actors to perform a particular play. And so all they did was they went to the side and they took a different mask. And so they became the different character based on the mask that they had over their faces. And that's, personality can sometimes be reduced to that. Performance. Proverbs 27:19. as water reflects a face, so a man's heart reflects the man. So now Solly is getting closer to the truth, which is it's not your external that actually is, the, is your identity, but it's the heart. It's something deeper than what appears on the outside. Okay, so what's in a name? When we think about names, let's think about the name of every person in the room. And I'm not talking about the name you got from your mommy and daddy. I'm talking about if a, if a uh, scientist was, or an alien came from another planet and they did some experimentation to find out what this lot of things is in the room. They, they move and they breathe and they grunt and they... Etc., etc., and, and, and this is what they would conclude. I don't know if they'd use the same categories, but this is more or less what they would conclude. The, the, the domain in which you operate is called terra firma, you are a, a land based um, thing, being, right? The kingdom that you belong to is animalis or animalia, the, the film that you belong to. Uh, is the cordata, which means you have a spine, you have a, ba- a backbone. Uh, the class is mammalia, and I'm not going to explain that. The order is primates, or primates if you're Greek, but if you're Latin, I suppose you can say primates. Family is homin- hominidi- hominidae, hominidae. The genus is Homo, and the species is Sapiens, which means clever. <laughs> you didn't know that, did you? The scientists think that you're smart, even if your teacher doesn't. So that's, that's, that's who we are in terms of scientific anthropological naming or zoological naming. Is that all? Is that all there is? I find it quite fascinating, actually, when you think about um, names and what power they seem to have. You see, if, you, if, if that's all, if you were to describe yourself, this is what I am. You know, animalia, cordata, mammalia, primates, homididae, homo sapiens. That's who, that's who I am. That would tell me nothing about 
your wonder, your uniqueness, your abilities, your dreams, your strengths, your weaknesses, your creativity. It would tell me nothing about any of those things. It will just tell me that you're a, a sort of a geeky-looking thing that walks on two legs, stands upright, and, um, and, and has a spine and a brain. And sometimes you're smart. And a lot of the time you're just doff. And sometimes you think you're smarter than you actually are. <laughs> There's much more to it than that, isn't there? There's also this thing called DNA. And the DNA includes descriptions of your nationality, your ethnicity, your tribe, your culture. Uh, it, 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 it's got to do... And then, of course, we go beyond that to things like your, the, the, the sociological questions, like uh, your clan, your family, your your gender, your age, your culture. Uh, there's so much. And then we go beyond that. Who is your daddy? That's a very biblical thing, by the way. In the Bible, they wanted to know who your dad was. I don't know why just your dad, but the dad kind of gave you some significance in society. That's why those genealogies go and they only name the dads, except in a few wonderful interruptions, like Rahab and Esther and Ruth, rather, and so on. Anyway, um, but also thrown in there is geography. Where did you grow up? And the old school tie. Who taught you what you know? Where did you learn? In the Bible, as I said, names, names go beyond that. Uh, people named their children, and it's fascinating to see how many children became what the names described. Have you noticed that? I mean, even someone like Jacob, <laughs> nasty little guy, and they named him Jacob, he that grasps by the heel or the supplanter, essentially the con man, the, the sneaky guy. And they named him that because he had his brother by the heel as the twins were being born. And so Esau got born first, but straight, straight after him was Jacob going, me first, me first, me first, you stupid They named him Jacob. And you know what a conniving little guy he grew up to be? I mean, ripping his brother off of the birthright. Uh, ripping off his father-in-law. You know, kind of. And then, and then getting ripped off in return and so on and so on. He became this whole world of deceit and, and confidence tricking of one another. And I love this. Then the angel of the Lord came and wrestled with him and couldn't triumph over him through the night and finally had to put his thigh out of joint. Have you ever had a thigh out of joint? Have you ever felt, you know what that feels like? You get your thigh put out of joint? It's like one of the biggest joints in the body and to have it put out of joint is one of the most excruciating things you can imagine. And even then he said, I will not let you go. Just like he had Esau by the heel, he has the angel of the Lord. And he says, I'm not letting go until you bless me. 
Why? Because I'm in this to get blessed. That's why I wanted to be born first. I wanted the birthright of the firstborn. And so, and God looked at that heart. And then, and then afterwards he blessed him and then he said this. I'm changing your name. From now on you'll be called Israel. And Israel means he that has been conquered and in being conquered has conquered. He has been defeated by God and in his defeat he became a champion. He became a prince with God. Isn't that lovely? There's a little lesson in there, but this is not the place to preach that sermon. And it basically goes like this. The only way you win with God is by getting beaten by him. Being conquered by him. That's how you get, that's how you win this deal. By the way, that's also how you win in marriage. Only way you win in marriage is by coming second. That's the truth. No, no. no. And, 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 it, and it applies to both partners. The competition of marriage is a race to see who can lose. That's the competition. It's a competition. It's a competition to see who can show more honor to the other one at their own expense. At the end of every day, to be able to say, I showed you more honor than you showed me. But you're not allowed to say it because then you, yeah. You know, that's like fasting and bragging about it. It's, you lose your reward. <laughs> so don't, don't do that. Don't do that. Don't, don't do that. <laughs> okay, quickly, let's move on. So names, you see, Naming started right in the beginning when Adam named the animals. Do you know why he named them? Because when you name them, you establish authority. Naming establishes authority. So Adam named the animals because he was supposed to rule over the animals. And so he said, this is what you are. And now Zebi, I've got your number. We, we often think like that as people. We think that as soon as we've labeled something, we've got control. That's why we tend to go operate by labels. Because it's our f- fascination with control. But names were prophetic, as I've said, about Jake and a few other people. Sometimes they were promises that God made. And, and so God, God made, uh, told people what to name their sons in some cases. And he said, the son is going to grow up to fulfill the promise that I'm, I'm making by putting that name on him or her. Uh, it was a statement of faith. Naming is a statement of faith. And it also, by the way, is a statement of, it it is used very often as a kind of a a description of redemption. A.B., who was old, and he had a wife who was barren, 
And they were both 80-something years old. And that's the reason, people, why she laughed. That's the reason. Don't blame her for laughing. The Lord said, she's going to have her own baby. And she laughed. She didn't laugh at the Lord. She laughed at A.B. (laughs) She's going, you know A.B.? You know, anyway. And God said, I am going to redeem this situation and you will have your own son and you will become the father of a multitude, a father of many nations. And that will be the token, the sign that says, by God changing your name, he is telling you that he can change your destiny. By God changing your name, he's telling you that nothing up to now has been wasted. That every single experience of life is a lesson that has formed and shaped you. And when God has finished with you, you will come forth as gold. He's going to redeem what the locusts have eaten. He's going to retrieve the stuff that you thought was lost. That's the way that he, he symbolizes it by changing names. So, let's move on toward the end of this. In the, um, in the psychological world, they talk about um, identity being formed out of having the answer to three great questions, the three great questions of life. And uh, they are these. Where did I come from? What am I doing here? And where am I going? Human beings need to have significant and workable answers to those three questions, to have um, emotional, mental health and stability. We need to know, in other words, these three things. What is my origin? What is my purpose? What is my destiny? Which is, by the way, and this is not also not tonight's sermon, but it's why Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am the life that is your origin. I am the way that is your purpose. And I am... Uh, the, the, the way which is your, I'm the truth which is your purpose and I'm the way which is your destiny. I'm going to take you all the way to the finish line. I am, I am the finish line, essentially. Origin, purpose and destiny. Now the world, worldly answers to those questions go like this. And I just want to, I'm going to say this uh, and then invite you to this little, this little moment that Paul experienced for himself. The, the world's answers to these questions go, like, and I've said this up before uh, this evening, so I don't need to belabor the point, but we use things like your gender, your ethnicity, your family background, your pedigree. Um, your purpose can be answered by questions like, Profession, what I do, you know, my education, my, the, 
the, the footprints I'm going to leave in the world by the, the job that I do, the business I start, the family I build, etc. And, and, my, and my destiny is I'm going to live until I die and then I'm going to go to heaven. No. no you know, the world, the world does actually think that, that all roads lead to Rome and so there's no, if there's any life, after death, we all get it. Um, but more importantly, you know, heaven is what you make of your life here. And, and so destiny is, um, is a very brittle, very fragile thing in most people's thinking. But the lack of understanding purpose and destiny in the majority of people's minds is the reason why there is so much disillusionment, there's so much depression, there's so much burnout, there's so much uh, family breakdown, all of those things are, are symptoms of the fact that people don't know the answer to those three questions. They may be able to tell you where they came from. Most of them think they came from um, an amoeba that actually you know, fell into a volcanic cone one time in the dim and distant many, many, many eons ago past, and then out of that crawled Big Daddy, right? It was a unicellular being, and then it split into two, and then it became eventually an ape. And eventually the ape stood upright, and he was called Homo erectus. And then his brain got bigger. Not sure exactly how, but anyway... Uh, and then he became Homo sapiens. So we, th- this is how we think our worldly answers to the question. The, the the result of worldly thinking is the strife and the stress that we see, and many many subtexts to all of that. For example, racial identity, identity politics leaving aside the sexual confusion, gender confusion that is, that is so, it, it's become a kind of insanity that is being celebrated on every front to the point where I now understand that there are 85 genders that you can choose between. 85. 85. I don't even know how anyone remembers 85 genders, let alone chooses one. So, and there's a great, read Romans chapter 1. It actually tells us there that when they gave up, they gave up the truth for the lie, they became stupid. Sin makes you stupid. That's the thing. All of this is not only stupidity, it is insanity. And it's making, it's making the job of finding a a, a real strong base for ourselves as Christian people in some ways simpler, but at at the same time very difficult. Not complicated, simple, but very difficult to do. Why? Because everything that has kind of gone before about our status, about our safety, about our, you know, our children's futures and opportunity and all of those kind of things is built on the same system that has produced that insanity. It's all built on that same system. 
Now we have to say, we opt out of that insanity. That's a simple choice. It's a simple choice to say, I, you know, like Luther said to some certain prophets one time, I smite your spirit on the snout. We have to smite the spirit of that insanity on the snout. And it's a simple choice, but it also means that there's going to be a massive price to pay. Why? Because we have not been thinking according to the new creation, but according to worldly ways of thinking. And that's why Paul talks in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, he talks about uh, carnal. He talks about natural people, carnal people, and spiritual people. And he actually says, do you know why you guys are fighting with one another? Because you are behaving like mere humans. You're thinking like humans. Stop being so flipping human. You know, I've had a lot of people excuse their sin by saying that. You know, God knows I'm only human. Paul says, stop being only human. What do you think I meant when I said there's a new creation? You're part of a new creation. So think like that. Operate out of, the, out of that set of values. And you will find life and peace. I'm going to quit there. Because here's what I want us to do for a moment. Paul in, uh, uh, that's died. Somebody got a Bible, maybe a page one. You know, one with pages. Philippians chapter 3. Will you read it for us, please? I want us to take a moment to make, make a deal. Make a deal with God. Because it, 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 it works like this. You know, in South African, uh, in the South African system of pensions, I know... Uh, um, you, you may not have had to deal with the social, uh, whatever it's called, welfare system, but but um, if you earn a certain over a certain amount, like from investments or whatever, you can't you can't claim a state pension, right? It's either or. Not that it's a massive loss, but. Again, it's relatively speaking. I think God works like that. I think he says, if you want them to pay you, then you can't get this. I've got an inheritance for you. But in order for you to get this inheritance, you're going to have to make an exchange. So, Philippians chapter 3 uh, You've marked it already in yellow. Read those verses, please. From verse 7. But whatever was to my profit, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them rubbish that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, 
but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God and is by faith. I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of sharing in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, and so somehow to attain to the resurrection from the dead. The things that he said, I consider them rubbish, included these things, included his ethnicity, a Hebrew of the Hebrews, included his pedigree, a Pharisee of the, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Pharisee of the Pharisees, as to the law, blameless. Wow. I don't think many people could have said that. So religious to a fault and blameless. And then he says, and I mean, he could go on and on and on and talk about who had trained him, which rabbi he had learned from, all of those things. But he said, I took them all and I put them on the garbage dump and I considered them dung so that I may have Christ. You see, what a lot of us have done is we have taken those things uh, whichever, whatever you could say about yourself, your pedigree, your vintage, your experience, your training, your education, your religious performance, etc., etc., you know, which, etc. You can take all of those things, we take all of those things, and then what we do is we add Christ to them. And so we say, I want Jesus on top of all this. But he understands, you know, I like my stuff, I like my... Status. I like my. I like my ethnicity. And so, God goes. Sorry, no deal. The deal is, you've got to go all in, for the surpassing worth of knowing Christ. What God has in His hand for you is this. An identity that is called, that is, goes like this, in Christ. That's the identity. You're in Christ. You can be in Christ. And we'll look at this tomorrow. I, I often say to people, you will never know who you are in Christ until you know who Christ is in you. That's what we're going to get to by Sunday morning. But Christ in you, the hope of glory, the hope of a totally different destiny, a totally different outcome for your life than any, anything that you could have designed. And, an, and it's an exchange. So let's just invite the Holy Spirit to bring some of those things to mind in our case. A rich young ruler came to Jesus and said, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said, You know the commandments. Do not kill, do not steal, do not commit adultery. Honor your father and mother. And he said, I've done all of that. I've kept all of those. Jesus said, one thing you lack. One thing. And then he said four things. One thing you lack. 
Take everything you've got and sell it. And then take the money and give it to the poor. And then focus on the treasures that await you in heaven. And then come, follow me. Four things. Four things that actually make up one thing, which is that I take everything I've been depending on. Jesus said, said it like this in, in retrospect afterwards. He said how hard it is for those who trust in riches to enter the kingdom of heaven. So it's not about riches, it's about where you put your trust. It's not about education, it's about whether you depend on your education for your status, identity, etc. And all of us have got something. For me it was, I was, I was an evolutionist, atheist, um, yeah, prideful, person insistent on my own way, insistent, proud of the fact that I hated people, proud of it. And Jesus came and he said, you give me that and I'll give you myself. We've all had those moments. We've all had a moment like that, right? Sometimes what happens is we take back some of the stuff that we surrendered and then we say, can I just keep this? I'll just keep it here under my bed. Just under my bed, yeah. And very often what we do by that is that we, we don't get the full payout of what God wants to give us. That I may know Christ. I consider it all loss for the surpassing worth. So Holy Spirit, we welcome you. <clears throat> we welcome your presence. We love who you are and we love how you make Jesus known to us, how you glorify him. I pray that you would turn up the glory, turn up our awareness, open our eyes that we may see and come, come near to us, Lord. Lord, you know how we have, you know how we are, how there are those days that we just take back our rights, our right to get angry, our right to be greedy, our right to have, our right to the peace that we make for ourselves. You know how we do it. Our right to just be left alone. And we say to you, you're worth giving up all of those rights. You're worth it. And so come, speak to our hearts. Come and do the deal. The kingdom of God is like a merchant searching for fine pearls. And when he found the pearl of greatest price, he went and sold all that he had so that he may have the pearl. 
And that's a deal that we have to do over and over and over and over and again in our lives. Every so often, we come across the pool again. And every time, it costs us exactly the same. Everything. 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 We give it all up for you, Lord. We lay it all down for the surpassing worth of knowing you. Let your presence rest with us. Speak to us. Deal with us. So that, Lord, it's, this is not about how much of you we have. It's about how much of us you have. We want you to have it all. That we may know you. We thank you, Lord. We thank you, Lord. Amen.